Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I want to begin by, Nigel's already set the tone a little bit with his comedy video. Uh, I thought I'd follow on from that. There's a classified ad that's been doing the rounds on social media um, over the last couple of years or so, and it reads something like this. My girlfriend does not like my dog, Daisy. So, after careful consideration, I'm very sad to say... I'm going to have to rehome her. She's been in my life two years, is generally well-trained, comes from a very good bloodline, but because of that is quite high maintenance. She's never bitten, but she does have a mean streak when she gets hungry. I also have trouble getting her off the sofa. Anyway, if anyone has a place for my now ex-girlfriend to stay, I'd appreciate it. The dog and I would like to rehome her as soon as possible. Now... <laughs> Obviously, that is a bit tongue-in-cheek, but it does reflect the sentiment that a lot of people really love their dogs. I love dogs. I am a dog lover. So I thought I'd start by showing you a picture of four dogs. Now, I know this is going to work because it's already been shown once. <laughs> Here's a picture of four dogs. Now, in my opinion, these are lovely-looking dogs. But the thing is, these are all rescue dogs. And actually, to really appreciate what they look like now you need to see the before rescue photo. So in a second, they're gonna click through and show you the four before rescue photos. It's quite shocking, isn't it? The thing is though, we're looking at Ephesians 2 this morning and that's very much what Paul does in this passage. He shows us the before rescue picture of what it's like to be a Christian. In chapter one, Paul spent the chapter passionately describing how wonderful God is. He shows us that this amazing God has chosen a people, redeemed them, forgiven them, blessed them with every spiritual blessing, lavished them with blessings, and that through the blood of his son, he's united us Christians with him and with each other. It's a rich picture of what it means to be a Christian because of what God has done. But in chapter two, Paul essentially stops and he says, if what you've heard doesn't have you singing with praise, it's probably because you've forgotten the before rescue picture. And that's what he takes us through this morning. You've forgotten who you were before you became a Christian. 
So as we explore these 10 verses this morning, we're going to look at these three headings. Who were we? But God. And then why does this matter? So point one, who were we? Well, in verses one to three of Ephesians chapter two, Paul shows us the before rescue picture. And it's not a pretty picture. Look at verse one. As for you. Remember, he's talking to Christians here. You were dead. And why is it that we were dead? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. In verse two and three, he continues to describe us as walking in that sin, which is biblical language for living in sin. He continues following the ways of this world and of the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. A more accurate translation of the last part of this verse is actually sons of disobedience. We weren't just disobedient. Our identity was in that disobedience, in that sin, in that rebellion. One writer helpfully says, we were not sinners because we sinned. We sinned because we were sinners. Let me just say that again. We didn't sin. I'll get it the wrong way around now. We were not sinners because we sinned. We sinned because we were sinners. Paul isn't just saying something. Paul isn't just saying that we used to be sinful. He's saying something more than that. He's saying that you used to be sons of disobedience. We were defined by our sin. And most significantly, we were dead in that sin. We were not just a bit bad. We were not just ill. We were not even gravely ill. We were dead in our sin. Now, one of my skill sets in my former job was bashing doors down. Most of the time, that was to catch baddies inside. But sometimes it was unfortunately at an address where someone hadn't been seen for a very long time and where sadly that person had died. I can tell you firsthand, there is nothing attractive about death. It is horrible. It was one of my least favorite parts of the job. When the door goes in, the smell was just awful. There were usually loads of flies, and I don't think I'll ever be able to unsee some of the things that I saw in those houses. Now, some of my colleagues used to say that they dealt with how horrible it was by reminding themselves that actually what made the person the person was now gone, that actually all that was left behind was flesh and bones. And whilst that's helpful because it does allow you to remain professional and detach your emotions from the situation, I'm not sure Paul would agree with that. I think Paul would say that those who are outside of Christ, those who are not trusting in Christ, when they die, actually their physical state reveals what was inside already, their spiritual state. Paul wants you to know and be shocked by the truth that apart from Jesus, our spiritual state is that of a rotting corpse. It's pretty horrible. And because of our sin, we were dead and we had no ability to save ourselves. That's the key thing to see in this verse. It's like that sheep that Nigel showed us earlier. There was no way that sheep could get out on its own. Now, if Paul had said we were sick or ill or very ill, that would give us some hope that we can improve our own situation. But he doesn't say that. He says we were dead. And as if that's not bad enough, look at the end of verse three. We were by nature deserving of wrath now as children of disobedience we were under god's holy wrath 
Before I move on to the next point, I just want to address a bit of an objection to this. Isn't all of this just a bit much? I mean, okay, I wasn't perfect before I became a Christian. Or maybe I lied occasionally and I enjoyed gossiping a little too much, but that hardly constitutes spiritual death. I mean, I gave money to charity. I made the teas and coffees at work. I even got involved in community litter picking. I think to say that I was dead was taken a little bit too far. Maybe Paul is just talking about the people who were really bad before they became a Christian, not people like me. But actually, this objection doesn't hold up. Look again at verse three. Paul says, all of us. So it's not just the really bad ones. It is all of us. You see, if we think, think of sin as a few undesirable behaviours like lying or stealing or swearing, then sin doesn't really seem like a very big deal. However, that is not how God talks about sin in the Bible. There are two key things that we need to understand about sin to see why it's so serious. Firstly, sin is not only an act, it's a state, it's an identity. Look again at verse three, by nature deserving of wrath. We deserved wrath, not just because of what we had done, but because of who we were, because of our nature. And that's because right back at the beginning of the Bible, you come across the story of Adam and Eve. And that when they sinned, they broke their relationship with God. But Paul, who wrote the letter to the Ephesians, tells us elsewhere in the Bible that Adam was acting as our representative. That means that when he sinned, it was as if we'd all sinned because he sinned on our behalf meaning that it wasn't just him who was changed by his sin. We were all changed by our sin. All of our nature was changed because of what Adam had done. That means that everyone who is subsequently born after Adam is not born neutral. They're not born sinless, but they're born already sinful. Now, there are lots of people who would disagree with that and say, no, that's ridiculous. Babies are born neutral. You can see that they're good. But I mean, really... <laughs> You can either look around at the world that we have today and see how corrupt people have become, how horrible we can be to one another. Or you can look back through history and see that no one apart from Jesus has ever been perfect. But even more than that, just spend the day with a baby or a toddler. It really doesn't take long to learn that they don't need to be taught to be selfish. They don't need to be learned to put themselves at the centre of their lives. They come out already knowing how to do that. And the Bible tells us that's because that's who they are. That's who their identity is. That's who all of us are in our natural state without God's intervention. We were dead in our sins. Secondly, sin is not primarily a behavior. It's a heart problem. It's a heart that says, I don't want to obey you, God. And more than that, I want to be God. You're not in charge. I'm in charge. Now, this isn't just treason. This is cosmic treason, because not only did God make us and sustain and uphold us, but he provided us with every single good thing which we have in our lives. And we have the audacity to say, you're not God. I am. The theologian Martin Luther said that the human heart, apart from God, has become curved in on itself. It's completely self-centered. Instead of having God who made and sustained us as our centre, 
we put ourselves at the center of our lives. A human heart that puts God, that puts itself at the center, doesn't truly serve anything. Instead, it uses everything for its own gain. It uses things and people and looks at them and says, what can I get out of you? What's in it for me? What will I get out of this? How will this affect my reputation, my feelings, my comfort, my worth? Now, this can be played out in drastically different ways. For some people, that might be a very obvious outward rejection of God and of all his rules. But actually, for some of us, that can mean that we will look very moral. If my reputations and my feeling and feeling good about myself is the engine that drives me, I could be a very nice person. But really, I'm not doing it for anyone else. I'm doing it for myself. I'm doing it because I care most of all about me. It can even make me sacrificially serve other people. If the idea of my own honour and my own reputation is the thing that drives me, then I will serve other people. But again, I'm not doing it because I truly care about them. I'm doing it because really the most important thing is that people see that I'm a good guy, that I'm honourable, that I'm respectful, and that I'm not like other people. You see, that's something else which being moral can help us do. It can allow us to look down on other people and be really pleased that we're much better than everyone we see around us. Here's a real shocker, though. Having a self-centered heart can even cause us to outwardly follow God and keep his rules, but not for his sake, for our sake. A person who did this doesn't sign up to serve God. They actually signed up to have God serve them. They're using him to get the things that they want. Reputation, a feeling of self-importance, the ability to look down on people who don't follow the same rules they do. If you want to see some examples of this, can I encourage you to read through one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. Look out for the word Pharisee in there. There are a group of people in the Bible who are supposed to be the best of the best when it comes to religious leaders. But look at their lives and ask yourselves, who are they really living for? Are they living for God or are they living for themselves? You see, if you don't recognize that apart from God, you were dead in your sins, it's because you failed to see two things. Firstly, that sin was not just something we did. It was who we were. It was our identity. And secondly, that sin is not primarily about behavior. It's about being self-centered and trying to put ourselves in the place of God. Verses one to three tell us before any of us became a Christian that we may have looked moral, but in reality, we were a rotting corpse deserving of God's wrath and judgment. And because, of, because we were dead, we were completely unable to help ourselves. Without God's intervention on our own, humans are devoid of hope. Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the passage, and that's not the end of my talk. Point two is, but God. Verse four begins with what many people, including myself, like to call the biggest but in the Bible. Try not to smile as I say that. It's very immature. The verse literally begins, but God. Where does the good news begin? Not with us. We were dead, deserving wrath and completely unable to save ourselves. But God 
did what we were unable to. In a sense, these two words, but God, represent the whole gospel. We couldn't save ourselves, but God loved us so much he came and rescued us. And look at how he did it. Verse four and five, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. A person becoming a Christian does involve a rational decision. It does involve looking at real evidence and real events and making a decision. But it's so important to see that before that, it involves God intervening and bringing life out of death. If you're a Christian, then you are a walking, talking testimony to the death-defying power of a living God. And as if that's not enough, look at verse six. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Not only have we been forgiven, not only have we been brought from death to life, we have been raised with Christ and in Christ in the heavenly realms. All the good things that Jesus has, he shares with you. And the most precious thing that he has is a perfect relationship with his father. And he brings you into that relationship. When you have become a Christian, you are brought into that incredible relationship. You are finally able to experience the very thing you were created for, a relationship with your creator. Formerly, we were dead ruled over by our sinful desires, by the devil and by a corrupted world. But God intervenes. He frees us from what enslaves us and brings us to his family. Not only is he our king, not only is he our savior, he is our loving father. And he doesn't rescue us because we are good, but because he is good. Look at verse eight. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Our great problem was that we tried to put ourselves in the place of God. But God chose to put himself in our place. Our sinful nature meant that we deserve God's wrath. But because of his great love, he took that wrath upon himself he stood where we were supposed to stand so that we could stand where he is supposed to stand jesus came to the earth and died on a cross so that those who would believe in him could live he died so that we could live paul wants us not only to see but he wants us to understand that these two words but god if it weren't for those words, we would have no hope. We were dead and without God's intervention, we were capable of nothing. But God has given us life. He's given us hope and he's done it by giving us himself. This displays the beauty of the gospel. It tells us that we were more sinful than we could ever have thought. But that we are more loved than we could ever imagine. Christianity is not about making yourself better. It's about recognizing we need a rescuer. We need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You can't earn your way into God's family. God knew this, so he earned the way for us. Becoming a Christian is not about what you've done for God. 
it's all about recognizing what he has done for us. So this takes us to our third point. What does all of this actually mean? Well, understanding that salvation is a gift from God, not something that we've earned, changes everything. Paul prayed back in chapter one that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which he has called you. He's in effect saying this is not enough just to know this stuff. I want you to open your heart so that this truth will sink in and change you. So let's consider some of the ways that this truth should change us. Firstly, it prevents us from being proud. Verse eight and nine pretty much demand that we start here. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Imagine that you're in a hospital and you're speaking to someone who's in an ICU bed. They're not just telling you, they're bragging about what's happened to them. They say, uh, don't know if you know, but uh, I was dead, but now I'm alive. Wow, that's amazing. What happened? Well, basically, my heart stopped, uh, stopped breathing for a few minutes, and uh, I decided to come back to life. What? How could you do that? Well, I mean, you know, all right, the doctors did do CPR. Uh, they did do mouth to mouth. They did give me adrenaline. They did use a defibrillator. They gave me oxygen, open heart surgery, a few other bits and bobs. But essentially, I decided to bring myself back to life. Now, at this point, you look across the room and one of the doctors who worked on that man is standing there laughing and shaking his head. Yeah, OK, mate, it was all you. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? A dead person can't do anything. They can't decide to come back to life. They're completely reliant upon someone else coming in and rescuing them. The fact that as Christians, we are brought from death to life is incredible. It is something to brag about. But don't make the mistake this bloke did. Don't brag about yourself. Brag about the person who actually rescued you. Brag about God. If you're a Christian, it's because God rescued you. And more than that, every good thing you have in your life, all the things that you're so proud of, maybe your intellect, maybe your strong faith, maybe whatever else it might be, all the good things you have were a gift from God. If you want to brag about someone, brag about him in his strength, in his loyalty, in his power, and the thing is that when you remember that you were dead, but have been brought to life, when you see other people who are still spiritually dead, you can't look down on them because you can truly say, but for the grace of God, there go I. Secondly, we learn to exchange duty for joy. Verse 10 says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here's the thing. Jesus didn't just raise you to life. He raised you to live. He didn't free you from sin and pay the price of that sin so you could continue walking in it. He did it so you could walk in his ways because in his ways are life because he knows he truly knows what is best. He knows that his rules are not there to put restrictions in our lives. Far from it. His rules are there to set us free. Living his way really is the best way to enjoy this life. He really is good and he really does know best. 
So understanding that we're saved by grace will lead us to be obedient. Not obedient because we have to earn something from God, but in response to what he's already done for us. And obedience, which is far more beautiful because it's not, um, it's not motivated by wanting to earn something or by duty, but it's motivated by joy. Think of it like this. Two men give their wives some flowers. The first one turns up and he says, got you some flowers, massive bunch of flowers. They were quite expensive, actually. Um, I've got you. I, I didn't want to get them, but I'm your husband. And that's what husbands do, isn't it? Um, yeah, you should know they're expensive. And by my calculations, this should mean you cannot leave me for at least another month. The second man says, I bought you these flowers because I love you. And I'm overwhelmed by how much you love me. And making you happy makes me happy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what a lovely thing to say. Now, one of these men is going to be beaten to death with the bunch of flowers. Motivation matters. And joy is a far more important motivation than duty. If, like me, you sometimes struggle to do things joyfully for God, then stop looking at the thing you think you're doing for God. Instead, look at the thing he's done for you. Look at the fact he's brought you from death to life, and he's done it by sending his son Jesus to die on a cross for us. Thirdly, we see sin for what it is. Become... Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you've stopped sinning overnight. If you take a close look at my life, in fact, forget that. If you look even loosely at my life, you will see that Christians continue to sin. Now, your identity does change overnight. You go from death to life. You go from a child of disobedience to a child of God. But the thing which takes more time is living in the light of that new identity, when Jesus returns or we die, our struggle with sin will finally be over. But until then, we are called to fight sin. That fight with sin begins by seeing sin for what it is, not just hating the consequences of sin, not just hating the fact it makes us feel guilty when we are caught in our sin, but hating sin itself. A sign of Christian maturity is not only growing in love of God, but it is growing in a hate of sin and an increased recognition and reminder of what sin was, that sin led to death. It's a bit like when that door flings open and a dead body's in a house. The smell will repulse us. The more which we love God and see what he did to free us from sin, the more we will hate sin, because the more we will remember that sin leads to death. But walking in God's way leads to life and that comes from remembering what he has done for us that we are saved by what god has done the passage reminds us this pass sorry um i've almost missed the point then I, that was it this doesn't just mean that we're looking to avoid sin in other people's lives as well that's such a key point to make because it's so easy to look at other people and say i'll avoid them because they're sinful it teaches us to avoid sin in our own lives because we know that sin comes from a heart and we want to set our hearts upon jesus and remember what he has done for us fourthly and finally it gives us courage in evangelism 
the true story of a God who loves us so much that he was willing to die for us so that we could be raised to life is good news. It is news which is too good to keep to ourselves. Now, if we'd contributed to our own salvation in some way, then we might want to tell other people so that we can feel good about ourselves, so that we can look down on other people. But this passage just won't allow that. How can we brag or look down on other people when we know that we weren't rescued by what we've done? We were rescued by what God has done for us. And this knowledge also brings with it a great comfort. It means that people are not saved by our ability to explain the gospel clearly or the way which we can answer their objections. Well, just like us, they are saved by God bringing life from death, by God opening people's eyes, by raising the spiritually dead to life. Now, this passage reminds us that it is God who saves, that we were dead, unable to save ourselves, but God sent Jesus to die in our place. It reminds us that apart from God, life was hopeless and empty, but God has given us life and hope and a future. We were sons of disobedience and slaves of our desire, but God has finally freed us from an endless cycle of trying to prove ourselves, trying to show people that we matter. He's freed us from an empty way of life and given our lives meaning. A salvation by grace tells us that my worth does not come from what I do. It comes from knowing that the creator of the universe loved me so much that he sent his own son to die in my place. Now that is news that we should share. Let me pray.